Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast, and this is a special history edition of the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, the Naval History Editor-in-Chief, Eric Mills. Hello, Eric. How are you? Hello, Ward. Great to be with you again. It's great to be with you. Um, it's looking like fall out there. It was been raw last couple of days. Leaves are turning. Um, Indian summer could potentially be over here. Yes, indeed. It's very autumnal out my window here. Yes. As I'm sure it is at yours. It, it is. Where do you live? You're up north of me? No, I'm east of you. East of me? I'm you live on, on, the, on the, in the Chesapeake Bay? Where, oh, you're on the eastern shore. Yes, indeed. Oh, okay. All right. Um, well, we had a good weekend around Annapolis Way. Uh, Navy beat Temple. I don't know if you guys saw that game. It was a very good win. Um, Navy hasn't decided what it wants to be this year in terms of its personality, but that's fine. You know, it's a weird season with uh, the COVID-19 environment, but great victory. It was Coach Niemantololo's 100th victory as the coach of Navy football. So that's a, oh, that's a great milestone. Yeah, for a great man. And, and that, that was very cool. So I've mentioned on the show before, I'm part of the chain gang. My Naval Academy class does the chain gang on the sidelines. Um, so I was able to see that one up close and personal. The brigade was actually in attendance for the first time this season. And I will say, uh, to my eye, it made all the difference in terms of the uh, the team's attitudes, their body language. You know, the first game against BYU was sort of weird. It was like spring football, nobody in the stands, really quiet between plays. And, and I think their performance suffered as a result. And, they, you know, we got um, – our uh, butts handed to us by BYU, and and this was a this was a great game. So hopefully we can keep it up for the balance of the season, including uh, the Army Navy game, which will be played in Philly in December as normal. Not sure if the crowd will be allowed. I hope that we've broken the ice that either the Corps or both the Corps and the Brigade can attend. Uh, so um, anyway, good good times, and uh, that is a rite of fall here in Annapolis. We didn't have any tailgating going on because. Uh, normal people are not allowed on the stadium grounds at the moment, uh, but maybe we can little by little iterate towards that sort of normalcy. So anyway, so Eric, what's happening in naval history? Did we just put an issue to bed? Yes, we did. November, uh, December just uh, cleared the boards, and we're really excited about this upcoming issue. So stay tuned, folks, for uh, and be looking in your mailbox and online for when it pops uh, at the end of this month. There's some great Nelsonian fare be had in there. There's a wonderful um, look at the valiant stand of the Marines at Wake Island. Um, there's the CNO Naval History Essay Contest winner, uh, which is a really fascinating piece about Admiral Zumwalt, the pros and the cons and the lessons learned. And there's various and sundry other wonderful things in there as well. More to come on that in future podcasts. Fantastic. The Nelsonian Fair. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I've been to the Trafalgar Museum. Nelson versus Napoleon. Yeah. Well, I went to the Mm. Trafalgar Museum in London when I was a young Boy Scout back in 1971 or something. You know, and they have the the wax figures. And and I just remember being struck by the wax figure of him with his arm blown off in the cannon area of of, uh, HMS Victory, right? And, and, uh, Uh you know, so anyway, uh, look forward to that discussion. 
Um, one more thing before we get to our guest. We have a cool event coming up on the 20th and the 21st of October. It's a virtual event through the camera lens, sharing the story of the U.S. military. It is our history conference, normally held in Alumni Hall at the Naval Academy. This year, like everything else, it's going to be virtual. You can register for this event at usni.org. Go up the events tab, and it'll be right there. But this is going to be a great um a great event. We have uh, folks like Dale Dye, who you've seen in basically every movie made since the mid seventies. You know, he's had a cameo in him, uh, including platoon and, and other movies like that. He's a great guy, a good friend. Um, Peter Berg is going to be there. He's been invited anyway. Um, and some other, uh, very cool folks talking about what the, how Hollywood has covered the military. It's kind of, I think that's going to be a very provocative and informative uh, series of panels. So check that out. Again, October 20th and 21st. For more, go up our website, usni.org. Click on the events tab. All right. So let's get right to our guest, Eric. Well, with us today is um, Trent Hone, definitely a heavy hitter uh, in the field. And we are thrilled to have him in the current issue writing about countering the kamikaze. Um, this is a very in-depth and interesting look at um, the kamikaze threat and how the Navy rose to deal with it and learn the lessons as they went. Uh, Trent, welcome. Great to have you back. Oh, thank you. Real pleasure to be back. Um, one of the things that um, was really noteworthy about your article is how we think of the kamikaze in sort of emotionalistic ways, you know, this last-ditch valiant Bushido effort, you know, fall in the sword, whatever. But actually, there's quite a lot of um, thought that went into this. They had, the Japanese had very, um, they'd done a very good job by that point of finding the weaknesses in the U.S. Navy's air defense systems, correct? And a lot of that thinking factored into the uh, Kamikaze initiative, did it not? I'm glad that that, that came through, Eric, because I, one of the things that I think is, is really important is that we assess what the Japanese were doing from uh, a perspective of its military effectiveness. You're, you're right. There's a lot of uh, emotional and cultural attributes that get thrown into uh, the suicidal attacks. And what I wanted to do was show how there was a clear rationality behind it. You know, the, the Japanese are dealing with uh, a very capable opponent in, in the forces of the United States and the, and the United States Navy. And but they're looking for ways to try to gain an advantage. Right. They know they're probably not going to win outright. They're not going to force uh, the United States to, to come to the peace table, but they could wear down the offensive efforts sufficiently to to come to a negotiated peace, right? They're trying to get away from the idea of unconditional surrender. And you see this in their shift in tactics on land, right? Which really starts at, at Peleliu where, okay, let, let the Marines and the army land and we'll just hide in caves. Uh, they maximize this on Iwo Jima and Okinawa and just try to um, kill as many people as possible to, to wear down the will of the United States and its people. And, and the kamikazes are similar in that it, it's, a, it's a rational attempt to, as you say, find the weaknesses in the U.S. Navy's aerial defenses, which had been tailored and adapted to deal with large uh, mass carrier strikes, right? A group of airplanes coming in together, dive bombers, torpedo bombers, escorting fighters. That's a really big radar signature. You can route interceptors to it. You can break it up and then cause the attack to become less effective. And the Japanese realized, well, you know, if we come in as small groups, 
uh, under the radar potentially and then pop up towards towards the end uh, or come in above the cap, then, you know, the combat air patrol, then we're going to get a higher percentage of hits. And if we crash, if we get some brave individuals to crash themselves into the ships, the damage is going to be significantly greater than, uh, you know, on a per plane or per pilot basis than a conventional attack. So and, you, and that's where they go to. So what, what you're saying is the kamikaze part wasn't the primary end state. That was sort of as you went through your ROE matrix, let's just call it, um, if you were unable to successfully deliver your ordinance, then uh, you went to the next step, which is just fly into uh, the ship. Well, I think it, I think it's mixed. I mean, it would be wrong, I think, to just say, well, you know, the suicidal element is is not there. Obviously, there there is uh, an attribute and willingness to to sacrifice at scale that that the Japanese military embraces, both the army and the navy. Uh, but there is a logic to it uh, that I think oftentimes is overlooked when we focus primarily on uh, the suicidal aspect, because you know some of the most successful attacks in this time are not necessarily suicidal attacks, like the bombing of Franklin. You know, Franklin is knocked out of the war. That wasn't a kamikaze attack. That was a bomb. Yeah, but I think the accidental mind, as we've said, the the, the drama is in the suicide part. Um, yes. and, and you do a nice job of op opening your article with the first attack, uh, the first suicide, the first kamikaze attack, which was uh, on 30 October 1944. So this is pretty late in the war. And obviously, they're, they're, as Eric said, they're getting to sort of uh, these uh, dire straits attempts to at least stymie the American advance in the Pacific. Um, so set the scene for us uh, and imagine if you were a sailor on uh, part of task group 38.4 and suddenly um, you realize that these guys are willing to fly into your ship uh, that was let's just call it a game changer oh yeah i think that's that's got to be uh, on a, on a certain level absolutely terrifying because you considering the weapons that the u.s navy ships have available there's not a great deal of capability once a kamikaze plane gets in close uh, to really prevent it from hit, hitting the ship if if the pilot is skilled and determined, right? The, the there are lots of 20 millimeter uh, automatic cannons. There are the 40 millimeter guns. Both of those have to actually hit the plane. You know, so you've got to score a real hit. And even then, you might not uh, do enough damage to knock it out of its flight plan, particularly if it's in a in a more terminal dive. Um, you might, you know, clip a wing or ruin some control surfaces, but but if the plane is committed, if the plane is coming at you, uh, it it is probably going to hit the target. The hope that you have, you know, the best thing is to be able to shoot down with airplanes before it gets that close, or to bring the five inch guns to bear if you're lucky enough to have um, the proximity fused weapons, right? Because these have a much larger danger space essentially, uh, because they've you know the small radar and the nose of the shell. So all you have to do is get it near the target, uh, but there aren't, you know, not every ship has those and you need time to bring those guns onto the target. Uh, once the Japanese planes get close, it's, it's really a, uh, a thorny situation to be, it's, it's hard for me to, to imagine how that would feel to be aboard ship when that's happening. Yeah. It, you describe uh, what you don't use the term distributed lethality. That's a, a modern concept. Um, but you, you, 
say that it is it's distributed in a way where single airplanes uh, can penetrate a, a enemy air defenses or in our case American air defenses in a way that a squadron or the way they'd normally execute an attack was unsuccessful. In fact, you you have the stats here where um, what did we say? Like non-suicide mission uh, success rates were were orders of magnitude lower than kamikaze missions in terms of uh, reaching their targets and delivering the ordnance. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the 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 ability uh, part of it has to do with with declining pilot quality, but but part of it also is just the increasing sophistication of uh, the Navy's the U.S. Navy's aerial defense systems. They're able to intercept and break up those those conventional attacks. Uh, particularly if they come in the kind of way that they that they would have earlier in the war. So the Japanese have to turn to smaller groups. Uh, this distributed lethality point that you make, I think, is is a good one. Uh, they learn that they, they need to come from multiple directions. They need to find ways to overwhelm the air defense capabilities of the of the fleet, which primarily relies upon the, the combat information centers and the people within those centers in the carriers of the fleet, right? Because that's where the fighter direction is happening. And so one of the things that the Japanese uh, recognize is if they come from enough directions, you know, if they create enough targets, they can overwhelm the processing capacity of the CICs. And, and so that's what they try to do rather than, you know, one raid to use the terminology that, uh, that they would have at the time, they, they create, you know, a dozen raids, you know, and then the, the operators in the CIC and, and the evaluator there has to make choices, which ones do they go after? Uh, and it's a very dynamic environment. And, and the Navy was recognizing that, whoa, <laughs> we can't quite keep up with this. We need to try something different. Yeah. So what what was it that they did? How, how did we iterate as the kamikazes were exploiting um, our, our tactics? One of the things that I think is quite interesting is how the Navy tries to, you know, to do what was done with the CIC, but take it up a level. Right. So the CIC essentially networks all the, the sensors within a ship uh, to build a sense making organization within that that ship to provide information to the captain to determine what to do. And now it becomes a, a networking problem at the next level. So now each task group needs its own system to keep track of its of its relevant threats and broaden the capacity. So it becomes a CIC of CICs. The CICs become become networked. And that's that's one approach that is useful. But there are other tactics that are employed uh, within the fleet that that are also more successful. The radar picket destroyers; these are uh, quite famous for their work off of off of Okinawa. Uh, begin to be employed uh, more more often. Obviously, they're employed around uh, the landing beaches there, and some of them are are sunk and and, and damaged. They are less effective than the approach that the fast carrier groups take. They still use picket destroyers, but because the carrier groups are mobile, they can get a sense of the most likely avenues of approach from Japanese planes. Right? They know where the Japanese bases are. They know where they are. So they interpose a line of destroyers, usually about a division of destroyers between them and uh, the incoming Japanese planes. And that is much more effective than than what happens off Okinawa, because if you get a division of destroyers together, they have sufficient firepower 
to be able to deal with kamikazes that come and attack them. And usually they have some fighters over the top that they can direct uh, to help intercept as well. Unfortunately, a lot of the destroyers and, and the smaller ships off Okinawa are just too small to deal with three or four kamikazes if they come at them at once. They, they, they don't have the firepower to deal with that. So key paragraph here on page 31 Taken together, these tactics allowed kamikaze raids to be an estimated seven to ten times more effective than conventional ones. This gets to what I was talking about earlier in terms of the stats. During the first four months of kamikaze attacks from October 44 to January 45, the Navy's operations research group estimated that 1,444 Japanese planes had attacked of them. 352 had been kamikazes, and they scored 121 hits, success rate of more than 34%. Conventional attacks made only 23 hits, just a 2% success rates. And then you talk about the trends that go into Okinawa, as you were just talking about how we got better during Okinawa. Um, but the same ORG estimated 793 kamikazes attacked, 181, which is 23% hit ships, 95, 12% crashed close enough to cause damage. Conventional attacks, again, were far less successful of basically 1,100 plus attempts, just 16, 1.4% damaged ships. Um, so you say one significant change off Okinawa was that a higher percentage of kamikazes went after smaller vessels, as you were just talking about. Um, and uh, so that as we can probably uh, anticipate, they lacked the proximity fuse ordinance that you were talking about that was affected, they're probably just using 20 millimeter. Um, and also, I think as I'm looking at some of these images here, that if, if you have an airplane that comes in low, um, that poses a problem in terms of the ability to train the guns below the horizon once they get in close, right? In fact, there's a we, we talked about this on a previous episode of the podcast where, where we were talking about the anniversary, the 75th anniversary of the signing of the peace agreement aboard Missouri, right? And so here's Missouri uh, taking a hit at the waterline on 11 April 1945. And um, we discussed the fact that that indentation, that zero made, was with that ship for its entire history, right? It never, they mm. never w buffed it out. I mean, it's that, that, you know, the airplane fortunately bounced off, um, but, but, um, that indentation remained a reminder for its entire life, even when it was brought back uh, in the eighties by secretary Lehman. So that's a very intense picture, right? I mean, these guys yeah, are, absolutely. you can imagine this white knuckle situation where here's an airplane that's going to slam into the freeboard of the ship. Um, just, just intense stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's right there. It's such a dramatic photograph. Uh, and it's remarkable that that moment, exactly that moment is is what is captured because the, the the plane i'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with it but you know the plane is is just right there um just about to hit and and wow yeah so the combat correspondent there um definitely uh, earned his pay on that one and i don't know what the aftermath was uh, in terms of the crew members that we see in the image there again i believe that airplane bounced off did not explode um, and only dented the hull, but um, definitely dramatic. So what was the end game here? What Did they just suddenly stop raining down from the sky, or what What happened? Did they run out of airplanes? How, how, how did this end? Well, 
they 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 don't completely run out of airplanes, but yes, there there is a steady uh, attrition of of Japanese uh, capabilities. Uh, they begin to reserve some capacity for the anticipated invasion of of the home islands, both uh, airplanes and and other other suicidal uh, vessels. But there's there's quite a uh, a significant attrition in the fighting uh, around Okinawa. The, you know, the listeners uh, and you, I'm sure, are familiar with the, the different Japanese offensives that, that take, take place during that campaign. You know, essentially waves of, of kamikazes coming at uh, the invasion fleet over time. And it, it's, you know, it, it's only possible to sustain that for, for so long. Um, of course, it's only possible to sustain that so long from the from the shipboard point of view, too, right? The, the one of the things that I think we have to acknowledge is that this shift that the Japanese undergo to what can be seen as a fanatical uh, approach to to warfare, at least in the minds of American officers and political leaders at the time, is is clearly influential in terms of their decision to consider dropping the atomic bomb. And, and leading to or, or helping to trigger uh, a decision on the part of the Japanese to surrender, right? So if, if you're not, if, if you're willing to, you know, as an individual, die in such a uh, destructive way, and if there are so many, you know, seemingly based on the evidence of uh, the Philippines and Okinawa, the Japanese uh, young men and, and quite likely women as well willing to do this, then, you know, we, there are only so many alternatives that you can consider to try to bring the war to a close. Right. Uh, that's a great point. Um, and again, I'm just thinking it, not just the crew members, but the nation at large. When, when word trickles home that uh, these pilots are flying their airplanes into our ships, you know, the, the, the suicide bombers, that, that level of fanaticism, as you've said, that, that's, that's foreign to the Western mind. What what was the legacy on Japanese society? When did they get out of this? Was this just you know part of what MacArthur did when he was you know fixing the country post war? Um, you know, because the ability to do this uh, as a culture to to commit to um, the kamikaze. Um, lifestyle, if it, you know, it's not much of a life. It's like outlaw Josie Wales dying ain't much of a living. Um, but uh, I mean, we're, I was told there'd be no math, but we're talking several thousand people, at least talented enough to fly an airplane, right? So that means they're educated. They got to be able to target airspeeds, altitudes, you know, drop bombs. These are not just, you know, they go to the local mental institution and, and, and grab a bunch of folks and throw them in airplanes. These, these are their. You know, certainly they were very junior, right? Maybe some of them, this was their first sortie. You know, it's safe for solo. Okay, we're going to go ahead and strap you into the airplane, and, and there's no worry about coming home. But still, you know, that, that level of commitment, commitment, as you've said, is is remarkable. And, and these days, I mean, we've seen some fanaticism on the part of, you know, Islamic um, fundamentalism and the sort of thing we've seen during the post-9-11 wars, um, but not to this magnitude. Uh, we haven't had several thousand uh, bombers within a stretch of a few weeks. No. You know, my understanding, 
although I am not uh, an expert in this realm, is is that uh, a lot of it has to do with the fact that you know the, the war does come to an end. There is a political decision in Japan to stop fighting. And not everyone adheres to it, right? We know of, of, of stories who, um, you know, individuals who decided, well, you know, I'm not going to conform to that. I'm going to keep fighting, <laughs> even though the emperor has said it's time to, to lay down arms. Like, uh, uh, you know, Admiral Ugaki, Right, who was uh, uh, one of the um, upper-level commanders in the Imperial Navy, uh, gets an airplane after he hears the announcement. And you know he's going to go try to crash this plane into an American ship. Um, so you know, you've got some, some folks who don't buy it. Uh, but I think a lot of others realized, well, okay, you know, if this is what we're going to do, if this is the direction that we're going, and if this is what the emperor says, all right, um, the game's over. And and let's figure out how let's figure out how to how to pivot from there. Uh, but there are aspects of uh, Japanese society that get into that, and I'm not an expert on those. But I think that that would be an interesting story if it hasn't been studied thoroughly already. Yeah, this is outside the scope of this particular article, um, but certainly our attitude towards securing the peace had a lot to do with that. Um, oh, you know, yes. uh, allowing a society to keep their dignity intact to the degree that it, it was uh, reasonable. Um, MacArthur became the viceroy of more or less of Japan for some years. You know, he didn't return stateside for another 13 years. Um, he fought the entire Korean War without ever uh, coming back to the United States. Um, so there's a lot of lessons learned there. But let's pivot back to your article. So you've, you've mentioned the network architecture and basically the sharing of the battle plot between ships, you, you know, combat information centers coordinating in a way that heretofore, maybe they hadn't to the degree that they were successful here. Talk a little bit more about that and the, the legacy, what this introduced beyond stopping kamikazes that informs how we do network architecture these days. I think this is, is fascinating. One of the things that I really enjoy about looking into this period is it has parallels to what I did in in learning war. So learning war started primarily as a look at the the evolution of U.S. Navy surface warfare tactics, and it was important. I discovered pretty quickly to go back pretty far to go back to around the turn of the the twentieth century uh, to discover where the origins of some of those patterns come from. And I think here with the effort to try to deal with kamikazes to to deal with this new threat that breaks the existing air defense system or exposes its weaknesses you can see the origins of uh, how the u.s navy approaches air defense and everything that comes along with it today right so part of the problem is there is no um, there's insufficient cognitive capacity within the cic that's the issue because it's all it's all manual and someone, some person has to keep all these different raids in their head. And so the Navy begins to turn to networking additional sensors like they experiment with airborne radars on uh, either modified B-17s or, or modified uh, Avenger aircraft, the torpedo bomber, to give a top down view to prevent the, the kinds of um, attacks that were avoiding or finding gaps in radars, particularly over the head of the formation. Because and, to that point, you could only see to the horizon, right? I mean, the, the, yeah, the yeah, idea most, of over the horizon awareness was non-existent. Mo 
most of the radars go, yeah, uh, you know, they, 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 they travel more or less straight, straight lines and they don't go straight up. So there's a hole, there's a network, there's a radar hole right directly above a ship. And then, yes, uh, your detection ranges um, decrease the lower a potential uh, incoming aircraft is. You know, so if it is approaching over the wave tops, you won't see it until very late. And the airborne radar fixes those problems. The other thing that they start doing is looking at how to automate this, right? So if cognitive capacity within the CIC is a limitation, how do you make it easier for an operator? How do you offload some of the tracking and some of the processing to a computing system so that uh, the operator only has to deal with the most relevant, most important information and can deal with more targets? And so the networking that the that the navy begins to introduce uh, in the cold war period you know to to automatically link cic's together and then the networking in terms of more sophisticated tracking within the radars and the weapon systems themselves that lead to aegis uh, it traces its lineage back to back to this challenge of the kamikazes so you know we have we have ships out there today that are to some extent um, the ultimate answer to the kamikaze threat. Yeah, and it's like you posited or you situated with learning war because in pop culture, it's sort of like, oh, we were completely asleep at the switch and we got attacked on December 7th. At that point, we were forced to get our act together, which is not at all how it went, right? The, the What had happened with the, the insurgents and the other folks you know, Fisk, Sims, Luce, Mahan, was they laid the framework that allowed innovation, once it got pressurized by Pearl Harbor, to happen in a rapid pace, whether it's the industrial base, whether it's how we evolved tactically to include wars at sea, to include air defense, to include amphibious warfare. All of that was leveraging the construct that had been created decades before. So same, same here. Right, our ability to address and then overcome this unforeseen threat. The, nobody, Halsey, name your leader, saw. Oh, you know what they're going to do next? They're they're going <laughs> to fly into. There'll be these, you know, cruise missiles, and they're going to actually have guys that are willing to fly into our ships, which is going to be a lot harder to defend. I like the one thing you described. You could have all the control services shot off an airplane. And it still has the ability to take the vector it's on and hit its target, you know? So again, you can be at a gun emplacement and just, you know, watching the thing you're shooting at come apart and it's still coming at you, you know? And so again, once a bomb misses, it's going to miss. This is a guided bomb. It's like a GBU decades ahead of when we really had those. So as you say, in the end, the learning system paid dividends in the last year of the war as the Japanese shifted to increasingly deadly forms of attack. So this goes back to learning war. And, you know, the Navy should be proud of its heritage of innovation. Um, and it's not specifically the what you did at any given moment. It's the big picture and the construct that's created uh, that allows the Navy particularly to innovate in times of crisis. Now, again, outside of the scope of this discussion, um, do you feel like we still possess that or is it lost because we haven't had the crucible of a protracted world war at sea? I know we can go, well, the, the global war on terror has lasted 19 years plus, 
but it hasn't particularly been a navy war um and and uh you know we haven't had to fight to get to our modlock positions to launch airplanes to support operations on the ground in afghanistan and in iraq so again this may not be your lane but how do you feel in terms of our ability to be like the folks in World War II in terms of innovation? I'm very apprehensive about it. And, and you're right. This isn't exactly my lane. I'm not an expert on this. But I'm, I'm apprehensive about it uh, less because of what I see in the Navy. Uh, I do get uh, anecdotal evidence from um, officers that I talk to these days. But more from what I see uh, in uh, the business and commercial community. Uh, where I where I uh, earn my living, because there is a challenge in many of the organizations that I work with. And one of the reasons they want to work with me is is to become more more innovative. And that challenge is uh, a lack of I, I tend to call it a lack of comfort with uncertainty. Um, but how it typically manifests is a relative unwillingness to delegate to people who are closer to where the information is coming from. Uh, and allow them to apply uh, creative ideas, right? We, we think that a good way to approach risk is to design it out up front. And what I think the Navy's experience in the early 20th century up through the end of World War II shows that if you try to do that, you're going to be wrong because the circumstances of technology are going to change in unanticipated ways. And when it comes time to come to grips with an enemy, they're going to find the weaknesses in your system. You know, they're smart, they're talented, they're in their jobs for a reason. And they're going to basically try to break your system. And unless you can adapt your system faster than they can find ways to break it, you're going to be in trouble. And a really good way to do that is to empower the people at the lower levels where the learning is fastest uh, to try creative to try creative solutions, to try new things. Um, now you've got to have a mechanism that supports them and that sits behind them that harnesses the learning that they are uh, creating, you know, so that you can exploit it for broader use, just as as Nimitz did with the, the origination of the CIC. Uh, but you've got to allow some experimentation at lower levels. And, and so I think our attitude uh, in, in this country sort of broadly toward risk is is the wrong one. We tend to think of risk as we want to avoid a mistake rather than risk being that we're going to lock ourselves into the wrong course and make it too hard to change, make it too hard to, to adapt as an enemy or as a new technology or you know as a, as a new lesson comes to the fore. That is a perennial topic, right? Risk aversion, particularly in the officer corps. Some would say the existence of the nuke power community has with a zero defect mentality has uh has bled over into other warfare specialties in the navy writ large in terms of willingness to accept risk people always like to say you know nimitz ran a ship aground when he was uh what ensign or something and uh you know he would have never gone on to five-star rank these days he would have been terminal at whatever rank he ran the ship aground so uh, there's something to that uh, I think there's something also to the environment in which you serve, which is totally not up to you. Um, you know, timing is everything. And, uh, you know, I'd like to believe that, uh, you know, American know-how and pluck is still present in the ranks. I, I do see evidence of that. Um, and uh, the times make the sailor 
in a way that uh, they would roger up if they if they had to. I know, again, talking about things like distributed lethality, which was the brainchild of an academy classmate of mine, uh, Vice Admiral Tommy Roden, who was the ship boss a couple of ship bosses ago. You know, that's broad thinking, and his legacy is that construct. It's been renamed and sort of morphed. You know, everybody likes to put their you know, imprint on it as they, as they roll into that job. Adaptability, I think is one of the sort of inspiring lessons of the Navy in World War II. They, they, from the, you know, this torpedo issue early on, they deal with it. Problem, they deal with it. And your kamikaze piece shows how even in the final phase there, they're confronted with a new um, perplexing dilemma, but they adapt tactically on the fly in the thick of things and come up with ways to uh, work around that. And I like the way you pointed out, it kind of set the stage for them in the um, post-war Navy. Um, some of the tactical ad- adaptations they made uh, to deal with the kamikaze threat would ha- help them in future contingencies as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it is. I think it is encouraging. And I think it's an important story to, to tell. We talked a little bit about that, about how, uh, you know, Aegis really is is kind of the ultimate answer to the kamikaze threat uh, with its, you know, the, the automatic capabilities that it, that it introduces for tracking targets and, and, and bringing them down. Uh, and also the, the Navy's ability to network different ships together to, um, to build a broader combat combat system. I mean, these needs were things that were, were identified in, in the fighting 1944, 1945. I think it's, I, I think the adaptability is really important as well. And one of the things that I am impressed with as I study these materials is how how pervasive it is, right? You get adaptability at a shipboard level, right? You know, people on the deck plates are finding new ways to do things, whether that's from damage control, fire control, or, you know, tweaks to their CIC. Uh, but then it goes on up. You know, I talked about Admiral McCain's approach to you know, the big blue blanket, they called it. You know, send a lot of fighters over Luzon and basically just sweep the skies and the airfields of Japanese planes, destroy them before they can take off and, and hit our ships. Right. That's an adaptation. But that's an adaptation at you know a, a much higher level, task force level. And then at the fleet level. Nimitz is constantly looking for ways to to get better and improve and make sure lessons from the fleet are being uh, harnessed and 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 promulgated, and Admiral King and Admiral Nimitz, when they talk, um, King is always interested to try to figure out. Well, you know, the German U-boats were this real threat. We made the tenth fleet. It's it's doing a good job against them. How do we make sure that those lessons come to the Pacific fleet? How do we make sure that we spread this around? Uh, so there is, you know, from the from the lowest level to the highest in the Navy this time, there's uh, a search for the edge. How do we get better? How do we find opportunities to exploit what we do well or improve what we don't do well enough so that we can get better and and um, triumph in this global conflict as fast as we can? The article is Countering the Kamikaze. It's in the August issue of Naval History magazine. The author is our good friend Trent Hone, who also wrote the classic book Learning War, uh, that anytime I talk to a group, I say this is mandatory reading as we described in this conversation it it goes through the basic construct that allowed the navy to innovate going into world war ii and it it's something that we leverage to this day so that was on cnr richardson's must read list back in the heyday uh of trent back when he was uh, as we said playing stadiums now he's playing smaller clubs 
um, you know, it's it's life as a as a writer, as we know. There's highs and lows. It's COVID, like trying man. to be a golf pro. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, COVID. <laughs> yeah, COVID. Yeah, um, you'll be back. You'll be back in the arenas. Um, so, Trent, always great to talk to you, uh, and thanks for coming by the podcast today. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. It was a great to see you, Trent. Good to see you. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you again soon. Oh,